Welcome to the Impromptu Board Gaming Podcast. Today, the panel takes a look at kingmaking. Is it really a game problem or a player problem? Later, during the game show, we test the deductive reasoning of the panel. But first, here are some games we've been playing lately. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm David. I'm Andrew. Okay, and these are the games we've been playing recently. Andrew. Recently played games for me uh, would be Kingdom Death Monster and Gloomhaven. Both campaign games? <laughs> Both the <laughs> bigger campaign-style games of moving people around on a grid to do things, but very different thematically. I guess both dark, but Kingdom Death Monster, more dark, more grim. Yeah, different different systems, different things, but uh, it's just funny that, you know, two very similar-ish games on first glance. But the actual systems are very different, and, you know, chances are these are probably the main board games I'll be playing on a digital medium. <laughs> Anything specific you want me to talk about these? Where are you in the campaign? Are you guys, do you feel like you're halfway through? First third? Last third? Kingdom Death Monster halfway-ish, maybe? Around there, I think, of, according to what Pirate Rob is saying. That seems about right. Halfway-ish there. And the Gloomhaven digital version, I have no idea. Oh, that's long. If you've only played, like, five games or something, you're definitely in the first third. Aren't there, like, 90-something scenarios in that game? If that's the case, one, awesome, got a lot to do then. David, you've played it, right? I have. 90-something scenarios, right? Correct. It's probably not that. It's probably not... It actually might be higher than that. I think it's 95 was the official count, and then, like, fan-made stuff. Like, there's always a bunch of content. There's, like, extras in the back as well, not including the expansions and other stuff. And then if you get the if you get the digital version, uh, there's even a whole new campaign in there. Yep, I'm on the digital version. So do the new version. Because, I don't know, the Gloomhaven campaign, not the most exquisitely written, let's say. But that's actually a good thing in the sense that you don't need like to focus on the story right. hardcore. You just need like the key points, and then you're fine. Yeah, and th- this helps in that you don't need the same group playing it every time as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's weird to think of that as a plus. It's a plus in that like it's not a legacy game, although it claims to be. It's a campaign game, and if for a long campaign, not needing the exact same people every time is definitely a plus. Agree with what David said. Flexibility, ease of play, all good things. Do you play with different groups? It's mostly just me and my brother, and then sometimes uh, one of our friends will join. Oh, okay. So ideally we three people, but if not, then we just go down to two, and that's fine. Yeah, what about, what about you, David? Oh, man, what do you like to know? I've been playing a lot of games online as well, mostly on Board Game Arena, and one game I've particularly focused on is Lost Ruins of Arnak. This game came out either last, two years ago, last year? I think it's two years ago. 2020. Arnak is 2020. Came out during the pandemic, right? Oh, no. It was right before the pandemic. So I can't, I think, I believe it came out right before the pandemic or right in the early parts of it. Anyway, point being, the game is very good. It's a weird take on deck building in that you have very few cards. Normally, deck building, you start with 10. This one, you start with six, even though you draw five each turn. So you're recycling the cards a lot more. However, the more cards you buy, the longer it takes to cycle through your deck, unless you specifically buy cards, which do that. And thus, how strong your deck can be throughout the game can actually be very high. But it's usually not that big a deal. Plus, 
Interestingly, cards that go through your deck again can also have a secondary cost, usually a tablet, and that adds to the strategy of what you need when you're going through your deck again to make it more powerful. It's a very unique design in that I've also had games where I bought very, very few cards until like the final few rounds, so maybe like one or two throughout 90% of the game, and done very well. Playing it online multiple times, like in rapid succession has helped me understand the game, uh, like the game mechanics and the game, the value of different actions to a much higher degree. And it's made the game a lot more interesting, even on the easier side, which is a lot less challenging. The strongest players don't usually play or people tend to not prefer it as much because it is just kind of easy street by comparison. But even that has a lot more strategy and nuance to it than what you might originally think just playing through it the first few times. I'm still not 100% sure what I think about the game, though. It feels kind of samey in a way. Or, you know, every game is samey to a degree, but it's the variance in the cards you get and the actions you do isn't too different. You're always climbing the same temple track. The temple track always requires the same costs going up, so you always need that. Uh, There is a little difference in which spaces you're allowed to get. It is a worker placement game. And there's the randomness of when you go exploring, you always find something different and you have to adjust um, based on those circumstances. And I think that's really the key to keep it fresh or that keeps it interesting each time is that there's a lot of pivoting you can do on your turn, although it's sort of minor pivoting in a sense, but it's still something different each time. And for that, I think that part's really cool that um, you can't just go into it expecting a certain strategy. The only thing you can't expect is what you need to go up the temple track. And that's um, Lost Ruins Arnak. I'll highly recommend the game. I think it's excellent. But Wait, you recommend the game, but you don't know how you feel about it exactly? Yeah. Okay. I feel, I feel good. I mean, I'm, I'm still playing it. You know, I'm still going through it and playing it again and again. Still learning new things, still enjoying it. I wonder I wonder if I would... Wait, wait, wait. Wouldn't you just say you enjoy it then? Then it's good. You know when you enjoy something, you don't know why, and then maybe something clicks and you don't enjoy it anymore? I'm worried about that. For now, it hasn't clicked. I feel, I feel I've, I've gotten pretty good at the game in that regard, but it hasn't clicked as to like optimal play, like the best play. And so, or it hasn't really clicked on what I can't stand about the game. <laughs> okay. I thought your description was a little funny. It's like, everything you're saying sounds like you like the game. How come you don't just say you like the game? <laughs> It's so it's so reserved. Maybe maybe in a future segment I'll explain why I hate the game. That's totally that's totally that's totally valid. Yeah, it's still learning and enjoying it. Once you found its uh, key, like Achilles' heel, and then you're like, "Oh, I get it now. I hate this game." Right. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe not. We'll see. I do feel like it might have been a lot harsher if I was playing this game a lot in person. The game is kind of fiddly in person. There's a lot of pieces. There's a lot of bits and parts to it. The setup is is kind of a lot. And it is a deck building game. So there's the decks. What I do like about this is that there's you only shuffle once between rounds. Once your deck if you draw your deck out in the middle of the round, then you just can't draw anymore. You don't reshuffle and keep going over and over again. Which I actually think is a very nice welcome change. You also shuffle your discard and put it under your deck between each rounds. So it's not like you'll start a round with just like two cards or something and then have to reshuffle. 
kind of thing. You always have your full deck, although the order will be last in, last out. Yeah, so there's l- less shuffling. But being able to play it online, I feel, has really expedited the playing process for me. And I can like try stuff, learn stuff, and really figure out the game. So I don't know my opinion of it playing in person. It, it'd probably feel a lot different. Is shuffling a big deal for you guys when it comes to playing deck builders in person? Me, yes. It's more, I guess specifically, I would have to make a caveat. It's shuffling on your turn is a big deal. Shuffling between turns, not really that. I don't particularly like shuffling. I don't particularly like shuffling like 20 times a game like in Dominion. But, you know, if I do it when it's not my turn, at least, you know, that's not interrupting anything or causing delay or anything. I'm not really doing anything anyway, so it's not that big a deal. Certain decks, having to shuffle like two or three times on your turn while you're doing stuff, uh, I find pretty annoying. I can definitely see that. I'm not too concerned about shuffling. I, I just have these this couple. Uh, they're friends of ours, uh, and um, they really like Dominion. So when we hang with them, we, we, we play Dominion a lot. And I have to admit, the shuffling is a lot for me. I'm like, wow, I did not mind this before. But since we're playing Dominion so much, it's almost like I almost don't want to build a really lean deck because it just feeds off the shuffle a lot. I'm just like... Big, big money every time, baby. Recently, I got a chance to play Deities, designed by Gary Kim, published by Mandu Games. I haven't had a chance to play very many Korean games, so it was cool to see more Korean games making it to the States. There were two things really interesting about the game. The components in the game were really nice. And more than that, they were functionally meaningful to the game, and it also used the Othello mechanic to gather resources. In Othello, you surround your opponent's pieces on two sides and then flip all the pieces in between. In Deities, uh, what you do is, let's say there's a stone on the board. You then play a stone and you get the, the stone on each end, plus you get all the resources that you flip between the two stones. So there are three buildings you can build. Uh, First is a wall, which is effectively just a ring. Then a temple, which is an actual building. And then a tower. And the tower can fit right on top of the temple. So any space with your building on it that is involved in resource gathering will earn you a point. If it's the wall, you get this specific resource because you can still see it. If it's the temple, you actually get a goal because the temple can cap a wall and then the tower can cap a temple. If you use a temple or a tower to cap any other buildings, you effectively take that space from your opponent. That controls who gets points when resources are gathered from that space and it goes towards a area majority scoring during the game. The board's laid out in a large grid, and each quadrant of the grid has an area majority scoring that either happens during the game or half points at the end of the game. David, you got a chance to play this as well. What did you think? It was interesting because there was there's a little bit of engine building as well. I was curious as to how much you can do that because there's three tracks of buildings. The bottom ones give you abilities and... Um, things the middle one gives you points but also uh, conditional points like points for getting the most buildings on the outside or 
more points for the more wood you have at the end of the game, that kind of stuff. Or just a straight four points. And then the top one, we're just increasing points to the point where the last building is 10 points, which is huge. And so, but none of us got past the third of the bottom row. And I'm wondering if it's feasible to just go all bottom row and get all the extra abilities, if that's even a strategy that could possibly win. <laughs> My first instinct is to say no, because there's an order of magnitude to the um, buildings. There's a wall, a temple, and a tower. So the wall is just a ring. The tower is actually a building. Sorry, sorry. the temple is actually a building. And then the tower is designed to cap the temple. So it's designed to go right on top. And then as far as the majorities go, whatever's on top, uh, whoever's on top owns the, owns the space, essentially. Just by that virtue where when you're competing in the area majorities, you have to have things that go on top. I don't think you can just go all rings on the bottom. Well, one of the neat one of the neat things about the game, I'm, I forget if you mentioned it or not, is that the area scoring is done in the middle of the game, and it happens when someone reaches the corner. There's four, there's four quadrants in a square, and when someone reaches the corner of a quadrant, that quadrant is immediately scored. So, if you were able to rush down to the corners that you're in before people can build on top of you, then having your space is taken over later isn't that big a deal at all, right? And so if you're able to rush the bottom, you also don't care about getting your species taken in general because you're not getting any of the, any of the temples, which are the conditional scoring, which can include needing spots you know, of your own, like more than other people. So if you don't have that scoring and you rush the zone scoring that you're in, uh, I could possibly see you know, not having control of your spaces be not a big deal. Uh, yeah, that that sounds possible. But I have to imagine that, you know, the other players will see what you're doing and they'll react accordingly and then cap your stuff. Like, they'll make an effort to cap your stuff. I, I, the more of the problem is I just wonder, like, because that track is there, so it's got to be a thing, but it just doesn't feel like the points are there if you go, like, all bottom track, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's set up so that you need to find your balance between the three buildings of what you're doing. And then I think it's possible to go all middle. I don't, I don't know if it's possible to go all uh, bottom. Because the bottom can be so easily kept by the middle or the, or the tower. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little less inclined on games that force you to do a little everything. I like games that you can just go hard on a track and have it be balanced in a sense. But I have only played the game once, um, so I'm not going to criticize that part too much at this point until I've gotten a chance to maybe try a few more things out. But once you figure out Achilles' heels, you better tell us how much you hate it. Yeah, I totally will. This is why this is this is why I'm a marquee reviewer. I'll bring the heat. Sorry, what's a marquee reviewer? I don't know. It's something I made up, but it sounds cool. Oh, okay. I'm like, is that a term I'm supposed to know? Because it just, I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> no, marquee is a general slang for excellence, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand that. I just meant, like, I thought there was this more specific board game. No, no, there's no marquee reviewer certificate. It is self, self-appointed and, uh, <laughs> and annoyed. 
Is it just me or do you appoint yourself to a lot of stuff? <laughs> I mean, I have the power to do so, so I will. It's just like king making. <laughs> All right, from now on, I'll, I'll call you the Pope. The guy that crowns the king. You know, classically. The Pope crowns the king? The Pope didn't so much crown the king as much as he crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. It's a whole historical thing. Someone online is going to totally, like, uh, look that up and then be like, no, that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, please. Please, please write a long post about it. I would... That, that sounds fine. I, I did, that's something I did not know. All right, <laughs> All right guys. Uh, let's move on to our discussion topic today. All right. The topic today is going to be about kingmaking. Uh, to start off, let's start with a definition of kingmaking. Uh, kingmaking is a situation when uh, you as a player in a game cannot win the game but your decisions will ultimately decide who wins the game. Uh, wait, wait, hold on. Why, why am I the player that can't win? I usually, I, th- I feel like I play better than that. That's such a weak joke, man. <laughs> I just don't like the definition. Go on. <laughs> All right. Fine. <laughs> it's okay. So when a player cannot win a game, <laughs> but will make decisions that will ultimately decide who wins the game. So we've all seen it in a lot of games. I think we've played every single role. I've definitely been the person making who can't win and will decide who wins. The person who is winning the game and someone else is going to decide the game. And the person who is like in second uh, could win the game if a, a, a third party makes decisions in my favor. I've definitely been all three of those. Uh, how about you guys? This is true. I've been all three of those as well. Anyone with enough experience in board games will be a part of all three of that. I, I gotta say, I feel like I get king made the most. Like I get what's like un-king made, like king usurped. I don't, is there a term for when you're the <laughs> when you're the person on the bad side of the king making? Anyway, I feel like it most often happens to me when I explain the game to newer players. So, well, that's that's a pretty natural phenomenon. A lot of new players always feel like they intuitively attack the teacher because it is it appears at least that they are the most experienced in the game. Right. I understand why. It's just like it's just a natural inclination to be like, I need to, you know, this negative thing. I need to target someone. Ah, the teacher can handle it. <laughs> they know what they're doing, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll go you one better. I've had situations where, uh, this is in Hansa Teutonica, where um, it is not clear who mm-hmm. to block or who to attack. And people will default to choosing me because they feel like, oh, he's going to do well mid to late game anyway. Uh, throwing and like slowing him down now is, is completely fair. So they're using past experience in games to indicate. Um, who to attack. So it's very meta in that it's it's not in the current game you're playing. They're using previous experience to make the decision. Oh, I kind of use that a lot too. Or not a lot. Well, I tr- I'll use it when I can because Teutonica, if um, listeners don't know, is a very unique game where you can block people, but you want them to unblock you because you get a benefit or to go through your block because you get a benefit. 
So in that kind of meta, I will usually try to block or target the person I feel is the most either desperate or determined. <laughs> Fascinating. Like, I get a feeling like they really want this action. It's like, yes, I will block you because I know you're going to plow through me anyway. And that's what the I want. The most desperate. Uh, I, like, I like that. Yes, desperate. It's like, oh, you des- you really want that, huh? Well, okay, cool. Let me just take advantage of that. Or the most determined. Like, <laughs> they're going to take it no matter what the cost, at which point you will tack on a very large cost. Yes, and thus, <laughs> thus I want to be part of that cost. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have to admit, that one bothers me a bit. I understand being attacked if I'm the leader or if the board situation as a whole as a whole kind of indicates that that's the best move or the most logical next move. But when you're using some kind of weird outside the game meta, I have to admit that does bother me. I don't think it's outside the game meta. I think it's all it's it's kind of I mean, I guess you can figure it that cuz I'm I'm in that instance I'm focusing more on playing the player and not the game. But at the same time, it's all facilitated by the game. It's not, you know, I'm not walking down the street and being, oh man, that guy really wants to get to that bus. Let me just, <laughs> let me just sell him something on the way in. No, it's, it's, you know, I think I think that is part of the game where you, um, it's opportunistic. You take advantage of what your opponents give you. So I guess I have a clarifying question for for you, Paul. Is that when this has been happening, right? When people are using this like previous knowledge, previous experiences to influence their decision making in the game. Do, do you feel it does it bother you because it's like they're targeting you purely based on past experience and not looking at the current game state? In this specific example, as far as like Hansa Tatanaka, the specific game state doesn't tell you a lot. It's too early to really have a sense of who's in the lead or because everyone's starting out. Okay. But then, uh, so it's very not based on the game state. And then they're just attacking based on previous games or previous experience. Okay, so yeah, not basically. It's almost, to me, it feels it feels like you're punishing someone who's good at the game. And I'm like, mm, okay, well, that's irritating. Well, it sounds to me like you think you're high, more highly of your skills than perhaps are that. <laughs> if that were true, then they wouldn't attack me. Isn't their actions indicative of what they think? So yeah, there you go. This is a compliment then. You know, if they didn't attack, if you didn't, you, you'd be more, you'd be more upset. You'd be more upset if they didn't attack you because you'd be like, "Come on, man, I'm good. Come block me, damn." And if you can still win, like you know, you're not cool. We differ on this point. Maybe you would be more upset if they didn't attack you, but I would not be more upset. I would be more annoyed. Fair enough. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't like get in their face and tell them, "Hey, that's fucked up," or "That move is uh, not, not okay." I just go. Oh, that's irritating. Or I don't say, oh, David's clearly winning. Why don't you attack him? I don't do that. I just think it in my mind like, oh, that's annoying. Fair enough. <laughs> then move on. I got to I gotta say that when, um, when I heard this topic and when I was looking into it a little bit, I didn't have too much trouble finding examples of either personal experiences or games that I felt did king-making very poorly. But... Like finding a game or finding examples of a game that does king making well, I found was I felt was really difficult. And by doing king making well, do you mean like trying to avoid the problem as best as it can? That's that could be part of it, or it could just be like they know it's going to come up, but they handle it well. There are uh, other than thematically, there are some games where thematically it makes sense, but 
but otherwise yeah it just it's it's one of those things that i don't know it's it feels like it's very hard to do do well yeah so one of the classic ones is you make you make everyone um multiplayer solitaire and you're only competing on very limited uh specific points so like a if you're building your own tableau um an example is like reef where everyone's building their own tableau you can't really uh, affect what's going on on someone else's board but you do kind of compete for the cards as far as scoring conditions and uh which coral you're going to add to your reef so and that's it that's all that's the only two points you compete on and really it's all in drawing the cards when so i feel like that's a kind of um king making proof game i mean how well you're going to do is cannot affect how other how well other people do and how well other people do cannot affect how well you do. so it's very like you can't mm-hmm. king make in that game <laughs> or i don't see how you can other than you happen to take a card that someone else wanted you know i like interaction in games too that's fine so there has to be some interacting points i've played reef i've never felt at any point Oh, clearly they took that card. Now I've lost. That's it. The game's over. A total loss. I'm going to sit here for the next half an hour or uh, just try to close a gap that's not closable. I, that's just never happened. Well, that's, that brings up another point about kingmaking is that it's generally speaking, kingmaking is either only happens or is only really noticed at the very end of the game where it's very obvious. Whereas you just brought up an example or a theoretical example of where it happens and then you have another hour or half an hour of a game where you're just upset <laughs> or you're just out of it. That tends to happen a lot less. Generally, I feel like moves made in the middle of the game are not considered king-making. It depends. I think it depends on the game. Because if there's a whole lot of game left to play, like that one move is not likely to have lost you the game. Or you can't, you know, making that claim sounds ridiculous. And in the first twenty percent of the game, and then you have eighty percent of the game to go. And you're like, oh no, man, I lost. <laughs> well, I suppose you, an eighteen XX player may disagree with you. I don't play eighteen XX, so. Well, yeah. Go ahead, write your letters in, audience. <laughs> they're pretty. They're pretty wild. Sometimes, like you can come up to the middle of the game. It's like a six or you know, four hour game or something. And about two hours in, sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes I'll be like. All right, here's what's gonna happen. He's gonna, you know, probably win, and then he's gonna do this, and he's gonna do that, and they're gonna do that. And I'm like, dang. Uh <laughs> just play a different game for the next two hours instead or something. <laughs> Sounds like I guess it's not I mean it's not always the case. It's just it's very deterministic and mm-hmm. so they usually have a very good handle of what's going on. Which is very impressive, but also very intimidating in some ways as well. Right. I almost never want to play with them. <laughs> Do you guys have examples of, of games you feel handle kingmaking well? No. So I, I actually do have one that comes to mind. Maybe maybe not necessarily well, but they certainly addressed the issue and did something that I thought that I felt was pretty clever. It's a game called A Meritocracy. I don't know if y'all have heard of it actually. I don't know this one. I've heard of it and never played it. Okay, yeah. It was made by local game designers like six, seven years ago. The idea is you're uh, trying to run a, pres- a presidential campaign to be president of the United States. It was released in like 2016, you know, very thematic, all that stuff. Okay, you can play three players. And if you play three players, the, the idea works is like, there's these various like campaign issues or headlines, or whatever, that you're like trying to garner votes for or something. You're, you're sending your like your, your campaign staff to these headlines to, you know, convince people of stuff and get votes. That. 
So if you could imagine a triangle for like the three people, you know, each vertex being where the players are sitting. And then the like the sides of this triangle are where like the campaign issues are for. So essentially there's one campaign headline you cannot interact with. Right. And that's the one that the other two that's sort of connecting the other two players. So I thought that was very clever in that, you know, sort of semi explicitly prevents like a more like direct obvious kingmaking situation. And that if you are the the you know third place kingmaker type player, you can't directly influence that specific headline that the, the two are competing for, but obviously how you decide to, you know, your, your, your own actions can still influence um, what the other players are going to do, but just not in that super direct way. So there, there are three issues, and then two, any given two players are dealing with one issue alone. So the, there are like three issues in total. Every, any given player can interact with two. And like compete for two of these issues, right? Okay, okay, I think I get it. Okay. I feel yeah, I feel an obvious answer is um, games that do kingmaking well are games that just kind of head on address the situation. And one of the main ones, of course, is just negotiation games. Okay. Um, if the negotiation is part of the game, then obviously your perception or your threat level is part of the negotiation. <laughs> and an extreme easy example of kingmaking thematically integrated is simply the Game of Thrones board game. It's literally in the title. You know, if you want to be king, you need the right allies, you need you know, people to like, you, you know, you're just going around pissing everyone off. They're obviously going to work against you, and that's all thematic, and it's part of the game. It's hard to complain about king making when it's a Game of Thrones. It feels, it feels like you don't understand the game. <laughs> <laughs> right. That game really does a good job of setting expectations. Yes. Which I think is a key thing in any kind of disappointment. If someone tells you, hey, you're getting into a situation where this disappointing thing may or may not happen, uh, you know, you're prepared for it, and then it doesn't hit as hard when it happens, or if it happens. Right. Or at the very least, you're not blindsided by it, which I think is a key difference. Yeah. And it's mentioned, I don't know if it was mentioned earlier here, but games, there's a couple of mechanics that seem to help with kingmaking as well. One, I feel, is just simply friendly ties. There's a lot more to games than just, you know, the tiebreaker. But games where the tiebreaker is friendly, where you share the points, like if you tie for first, you get all get, you both get maximum points and so on. Rules like that tend to help cooperation, I suppose, and it makes it harder to... I feel like it limits competition. It limits competition in a way, but you don't get more if you like beat the other guy because you're both getting the maximum. Right. And you don't hurt someone as much by going into some place. Oh, if you tie someone, you don't hurt them. Yeah. A fights B, so then C wins. It's less of that because A and B just both get the same benefit that they would have anyway. Um, obviously, there are exceptions to this, and you know you can still screw some mm. over to some degree, but it makes it a little bit harder. But at the same time, it also kind of makes it more multiplayer solitaire-ish. What you mention is a way to curb it in a, in a sense in that there is no, you're not affecting other people. Or at the very least, the competition is limited to a very right. specific few touch points. Right. If, there's no inter- if there's no player interaction, you literally can't. Right. And then the other one is just simply hidden scoring. If the scores are hidden, now I actually feel this is more of a time-saving mechanic than a king-making prevention mechanic. Yeah, a lot of designers do that. It's still worth mentioning, though. In that, like, if you don't know uh, someone's true value and it's not easily trackable, then it's more based on like how you feel people are doing rather than 
specifically calculating out who to target based on who's exactly winning. I feel like that gets mixed results. It does. It won't prevent it won't prevent king making, but it makes it more quote unquote fair. Well, it's not conscious. It's not obvious it's not conscious. It's not like you're being specifically targeted or I guess to use a dramatic word, victimized. Yes. And then the last I'd bring up is um non-targeted aggression. If I had a card that like everybody loses three food. Maybe come in a situation where you're the only one with food and you're the one I wanted to target, so it works out that you're the only one targeted. But in general, especially if these cards are telegraphed in some way, targeting everyone is just a way to be like specifically targeted target someone unless they're the only one in that strategy. It makes it more general and thus less about targeting a specific person as opposed to just targeting everyone. And while it still can be used in a king way in situations, it makes it a lot more overt. Let me ask you guys something. So this is in regards to Andrew's favorite overrated game. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay, Terraforming Mars. We were going over this game of Terraforming Mars, and we are talking about the evaluation of card cost versus effect. Like, is the cost correct is essentially the question. So I was talking about this with a few other people who were playing the game with And Donald X. Vaccarito, designer of Dominion. And other games, but notably Dominion. And other, ga- and other games. Uh, Kingdom Builder, uh, Temporum, etc., etc. <laughs> Gauntlet of Fools. Right. He steps in, interrupts our conversation, and says, uh, this is designed badly. Now, for those of you who don't know Donald personally, which is, I'm guessing, most of you... <laughs> He does this a lot. <laughs> so it's not like I'm personal friends with him or anything, and, and I'm name-dropping this famous guy. No, it's more Donald is an opinionated designer, and will step in and give you his strong opinion whether you ask for it or not. And his opinion was basically the comic cards that destroy other players' plants and uh, uh, hampers their ability to put out greeneries was poorly designed and that they should target everyone as opposed to a single player. And then my argument was that that's too powerful. You would have to up the cost of that card by a lot to really um, do the effect you're, you're, uh, you want. Uh, because its value or its uh, effect varies by a lot if you're playing a two-player game of Terraform Mars or a five-player game of Terraform Mars, right? If it says everybody loses one plant, it's a difference between uh, destroying four other plants or one other plant. So I feel like uh, what they did there where you just, it costs X amount and it only targets one person and it's up to you to decide who it is, is, you know, not the greatest, but it made sense within the context of the game. And somehow just targeting everybody, though it would, I guess, reduce kingmaker, which is, is fair. I feel that is the wrong way to go. And because if those cards are just too highly costed, they no one would ever pick them. They would just get um, tossed because they clearly uh, cost too much. And there's only very specific situations where you would even try to use them, right? You would look around at your opponents and think, okay, does everybody actually have plants? And what if two players do and two players don't? Is it worth it still? And... I tried to make this argument, and he just wouldn't budge. He's just like, no, that's, that's, 
and that's wrong. That's designed incorrectly. You should do it. You should do it like this. And he, he wouldn't listen to me. So what do you guys think? Uh, whether Donald is right not to listen to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on uh, changing the mechanic or not, I guess you could reword that as to whether you thought I was correct or Donald's. Well, let's let Andrew go first. I would lean towards Donald, actually. Because, um, like, because, so, there's there's a couple points here. Um, one, like, I, like, uh, like, you bring a good point that, obviously, it's, um, it's more, a bit more of a powerful effect if you, when you're affecting more players, right? Um, and so, so, say we change it to affect all players. In addition to adjusting the cost, you could even potentially increase the personal benefit to the player, right? Because, like, like, I'm pretty sure this Comet thing doesn't only get rid of plants. It does other things. In general, most of those cards do multiple things. It'll be like, put an ocean on the board, put a greenery on the board, put uh, whatever, and it will destroy X number of plants. Of yeah. So, like, I, I guess my... I was thinking, so, you know, there are more things we could, if you want to change the card, there are more things we can adjust than simply the cost and, you know, whether it affects all players, right? You could increase the personal, the other benefits on the card. The other thing, when you mentioned the, oh, is it still worth it if I'm, if I, you know, big game and two people plants, two people don't have plants. If you're willing to play it to affect someone's, to affect one person's plants, like they really need it, everything else is just a bonus. Right, so from that, from that, so from that mindset, why not just have it target everyone by default? Well, I think part of the problem would be like how much are you raising the cost of the card? Sure. When you're playing Tanner for Mars, you generally don't pick super large cost things early unless they have a extremely high benefit throughout the rest of the game. So this is like a one-time hit. So. That's generally not the, not the case. And if you make it too expensive, you're basically losing the utilities loss. And if the utilities loss, you know, anyone who drafts or draws that card early, ultimately, you know, getting hurt, right? Their options are just not as good. I mean, I think uh, the cost is very important because ultimately you want every card to be worth around the same. You want you want to make uh, like these are two good cards and make the best choice out of those two cards. Not these are one good card, one bad card, because then the the choice becomes obvious. Oh, uh, you just take the good card and that's it. And then the worst case scenario is oh, you've drawn all bad cards. Let me pick mm-hmm. something and you know ultimately not choose any of them. You won't buy any cards that round. Like ideally, I I would think is you want the card's value to be. A, a little variable with like where you are in the game, a little variable with how much this will hurt an opponent, and a little variable of how much it, it benefits you. That variance needs to be relatively small so that you're making decisions amongst more than one good card, not make the game more obvious as far as, oh, this is good now, and this is only good in these fairly specific situations. I think ultimately that makes the game worse. I, I fully agree, and I, I think all those things you said apply to the cards in question that we're talking about. You want it, right? Ideally, you want to hit plants, deny someone, be able to like convert it into production or whatever. Oh, I guess I'm thinking the, the energy on my guys for heat. It right, right. That using the when you actually want to use that card will depend a lot on those things based on those variables you mentioned as well. 
like I agree that you know you have to adjust the costs accordingly if we change the effect, but like it seems very reasonable to me to just have it target everyone and sort of and have a higher cost and and adjust something else about it. Yeah, it might not even be that much higher. It might not even actually be that much higher. I mean, yeah, we're just talking about two variables, right? The cost of the card and how much it hurts another player or multiple players. So if you change one in general, you you have to change the other. I don't I don't know if that's necessarily true. Although I mean, I guess you should. It depends on the game itself. The problem here is that we're going off a little off topic. The topic was more about if king making, where if you have a card and it targets everyone. It's only king making if it only targets one specific person. As it is now, the card... And targeting that person would actually affect the, who wins the game. Right, and so the card as it is now is just not a good card in terms of a lot of things. One is that the specific targeting is just really, really poorly implemented in Terraforming Mars. Oftentimes, it can be even devastating to have your resources removed and just you and you're the only one that suffers. Furthermore, the person playing the card is often suffering because they're overpaying for a card that just hits one opponent, whereas all the other opponents get to thrive. It's kind of like the classic A A targets B, so C wins kind of thing. And thus, in those regards, it's just, yeah, it's just a bad card in general for the game, I think. Really? So do you both agree with Donald that it should be more along the lines of target everyone? I, th- I, th- I think I do, yeah. Well, I guess I'm in the minority here. I, I think D- D- David isn't arguing for a redesign. David's arguing to just cut that card. I think we should cut the yeah, cut the card altogether. Although the events that uh, bring comets? Well, not the, not the comet itself. The events that target other people, specifically. And you have to choose. I guess you can choose not to do it, but then that's losing your self-value, sort of. Okay. In most games of Terraforming Mars I've played, and I have to admit, it's a lot, the runaway leader thing is generally fairly obvious. I think the targeting, as far as the comments, usually goes to the right place. Once in a while, like it becomes like, oh, there's no one to hit but this person, so they hit them. And you know that's not great. But usually it's like, oh, okay, this person's more than likely winning. Maybe this other person has more plans, but since they're not winning. And maybe this is just like the, the people I play with. Everyone knows the game well enough, like, okay, this person's clearly winning. Uh, I think that's actually one of the uh, instances of kingmaking where it's more or less acceptable because the, the expectation's been set. Like, this is just something that happens in the game. And I've never seen anyone, like, overreact. I've definitely seen people react, but not overreact, to getting their plants uh, destroyed. Sorry, there's levels to this, because while getting your plants destroyed is usually not the worst thing, and in fact, I kind of like, the one thing I like about getting your plants destroyed cards is that it prevents people from hoarding, like, I don't know, 30 plants, so they can just build a city. Who hoards 30 plants? Well, no one does, because you can get your plants destroyed. Unless you have the Protected Habitats card, then you could do it. But you could hoard 30 plants and then build a city and just go just around it if you're the first person to have a city. St- stuff like that. I guess that doesn't happen in Terraforming Mars because you want to go out earlier to get those oxygen points and Terraforming Mars to increase your money. I think that's just bad play. Yeah, the Terraforming points increase your income from round to round. I'm, I'm not trying to get into specific of Terraforming Mars. I'm just talking about a use of the attack, like a targeted attack. It would have the secondary effect if it wasn't already bad play for many people from hoarding their plants. 
you can see this in Dune Imperium where they don't have a limit on entry cards, but they do have a space where if you have four or more, someone will steal one. So that just indirectly prevents people from having more than three entry cards. It discourages. Yes, strongly discourages. Oh, okay. As far as Terraform Mars, like it already incentivizes you to not do what you're describing. So it seemed weird to me that it prevents this problem that's not a problem. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but the point is, is that like those are the secondary effects of the attack cards. But anyway, the um, Donald, Donald is more right than you are. <laughs> uh, I don't agree, but uh, that's fine. I, I, I had a feeling you wouldn't. <laughs> okay, do you guys uh, have any uh, examples of uh, making situations? No, it's never happened. <laughs> I think one of the main things to talk about for kingmaking is that it's not always so obvious. The most frustrating one for people, I think, is the one not where you have to pick something and then one person will win based on what you do, but it's also where choosing nothing is also a choice um, that allows someone else to win. I think that is more frustrating than... Mm the other situation where you get to kind of choose and it's really obvious that takes the agency of staying out of it out of the player's hands and it makes some people very uncomfortable maybe that's not the right word but at least uneasy because i have i have a pretty i feel like i have a pretty hot take on king making which i want to save till last so get ready for that but i feel like the perception of it is often the worst thing as opposed to the actual action of it I think so. If you set expectations for it, it really doesn't hit as hard. It's when you don't see it coming and you get blindsided. Then it's like, oh, this fucking sucks and came out of nowhere. You feel like you were wrong. Yeah, you wronged me in a way that I don't deserve. Why does everyone who why does everyone who gets king made against have a lower voice <laughs> and limited, vo- limited vocabulary? It always seems to happen. I don't know why. Let me give you guys a hypothetical situation. Ready? You're playing a four-player game. You are player number four. You're in last place. Sure. You cannot win the game. It is mathematically impossible. Players one and two are... uh, Player one's leading, and player two is second, and it's pretty close. Because of the nature of the game, you can make a move that will hurt either one, therefore giving one of them the win. So player one is winning, but player two, on his previous turn has attacked you in a manner that made it impossible for you to win, okay? And there's player three. Player three is not in the running to win, and player three score is relatively close to yours. So do you, A, attack player one, that guy's winning, and it seems natural to attack the person who's furthest in the lead to limit the delta between your score and the winning score? Or... Do you attack player two, the person who wronged you, so as to get them back and clearly indicate that being attacked will uh, garner reprisal and will not go unanswered? Or do you attack player three to guarantee that you're not last? And there's, uh, you know, there's something to mention that you don't affect players one or two, so you're not actually king-making as far as who wins the game, but you are setting up a situation where you're not affecting the end of the game and you're definitely not coming in last. Now, I've definitely met people who have done all three. <laughs> I've definitely, yeah, various people like diehards of their position. 
some people are always attack the uh, guy in in front and limit the difference between your score and the winning score. Some people are like, oh, he attacked me. I got I got to hit him back. That's just the way it is. And an unusually high number of people, which I think is weird, is attack the third guy. I don't care about who's winning. I just don't want to be last. And they're sort of like emotional attachment to not being last is so strong. <laughs> they just do it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's weird. <laughs> I don't know. I find that, a li- I don't understand that specific concept, but. I understand a little bit more. If you connect it to just an emotional attachment of being last, that's a little different. But if you rephrase it as a lot of times in kingmaking situations, people will not even care about that and just pick the option that's best for them and let the pieces fall where they may. If you're playing a game that's just, let's say there's no points, it's just ending placements, and you have a chance to be third and not last, that's what you do, right? You just you, you play to improve your position the best, and that would be the option that does that. But does that go to just scoring the most points or actually changing your position in, in the, in the four-player game? I think, you know, it depends on the game, but those are the same things. Usually you... Those are usually the same things, but not necessarily the same. Is your attachment more to not being last, or is it to scoring the most points from you, your given position? Oh, for me, it's always I want to play the best game I can. But for the situation you're talking about, where you said you couldn't understand the connection of not being last, I feel like the third option is to two ways of looking at it, which is to just do the best you can, which would be to not be last and be third. But you could also weigh it as, no matter what, I just don't want to be last. Those are two different reasonings for the same answer. So how would you guys answer that question? Two. Definitely two. F that guy. But the realistic answer is I'll just kind of play how I feel. If I want to take out the first place guy for whatever reason, then I will. If I really want to retaliate, then I will. Oftentimes, my retaliation would be based on how, if it was a good attack, like, oh, you really caught me off guard, I'll actually give you more respect than hatred, generally. Hmm. Respecting the plays. If it's the only factor, then yeah, okay, I'll retaliate. If there's other things, like, oh, you know, that was that was good, you know, respect. Hey, I want to, I don't want to come in last. <laughs> Let's go. Other times, I don't care what place I come in. I want to try to even the playing field a bit and so that people fight it out for first. It's more entertaining for me. I, I do agree that it, it will depend. If I had to choose, like, if it's obvious, if, like, I can calculate, you know, the how much it would affect the points based on an action, I would go for the biggest point change, whether it's boosting my score or hurting someone else's. Yeah, it does sound like the score boost is tied to option three, where you, you're not in last anymore, you beat the third place guy. But I don't know. I mean, it could be that you get third play, just crashes the third place player's game, so they lose like 40 points. I mean, that's possible. I don't know the game we're talking about, obviously. <laughs> it's just some hypothetical. Yeah, I agree. I think I think overall, uh, I would choose three more often than the other two. So you would attack player three? Yes. And not affect the outcome, or because you don't want to be last? We're assuming that attacking player three is your best personal move. Um, for the most points or whatever the status is of the game, as opposed to just you stay the same, but player three loses like 100 points, so you get third kind of thing, if that makes sense. I think our general take is that in those situations, you play to what gets you the most points. Again, it's a, it's a hypothetical, so we took the question as it was presented. In a different game, I might just go after player one. 
Your answer is the same. You either attack player three, Andrew. Most points or cause the biggest change in points or something. I think so, yeah. Although sometimes I've done it unknowingly. Like this is this is a this is a perfect information hypothetical. But a lot of times you you're not sure who's in first place, but you are sure who attacked you earlier. <laughs> so so wait, wait, that's player two. That's player two, yeah. Sometimes I'll do that. Okay. Oh, for sure. So player one is definitely in the lead. Player two is the one who attacked you. And player three is just third and... Kind of in the same boat. He's next to you in the same boat, yeah. Yeah, it really depends. Like, in a straight open information scenario, it's probably player three. But in a, in a real game, you know, oftentimes there'll be a game where, like, well, player one is highest on the score track right now, but player two, you know, has hidden information has like three bonus cards we don't know what they are and player three has like potential we think they're going to do better later you know who do you go after that's that's usually where it comes down to and so you know oftentimes you just don't know but you go after who you perceive is doing the best or is hindering you the most i suppose like stop that i usually attack player one usually not three I don't have a big attachment on not being last. That just seems very, like, whatever. There's not a lot of difference between being third place and fourth place to me. But attacking player one for actually being in the lead, that's the one I would do the most often. And then depending on how heinous uh, player two attacked me, sometimes I'll attack player two. So how do you guys feel about Lords of Waterdeep? how they handle hidden information as far as what your scoring bonus is and uh, how it pertains to Kingmaker. For those of you who don't know, uh, Lords of Waterdeep, you recruit a bunch of uh, adventurers to go on quests. And usually you start the game with a hidden lord, and the lord will give you a bonus points for doing a particular type of quest. Those bonus points are generally pretty significant. They can be as much as 20 to 30 points in a close to 200 point game. They're not like game breaking, but they're significant. It's very significant. You definitely have to factor it in. And there's a mechanic in the game where you can send other players on mandatory quests, which basically just tie up their times and resources. And the biggest limiting factor in the game is, I think, actions. You just don't have enough actions to do as much as you want. So um, as far as how it deals with kingmaking, what would you give Lords of Waterdeep? Uh, I would give Lords of Waterdeep like a 2 out of 10. 2 out of 10? Does not handle it well. Well, it's more like it doesn't handle it at all. But it's one of those games where it's not really, you don't really kingmake either. It's a worker placement game. So the only way to technically kingmake is to block someone. But, you know, if you're just playing just to block someone, then you screwed up. Either Either you have a big enough lead in first place where you recognize you're in first and you can recognize who's in second and you just want to block them, which is incredibly rare and also hard to do in that game. The other option is just take a spot that someone else wanted, but that's just that's just worker placement. Yeah, I don't feel like there is much king-making in Lords of Waterdeep. What people usually allude to, though, in that game is there's these action cards you get. Oftentimes when you do a quest or do some other action, you can play an action card from your hand. And these action cards give you a variety of bonuses, but there's one in particular which is particularly not well done, and they're called mandatory quests. And what you do is you play the mandatory quest on someone else. They have to do the mandatory quest before they're able to turn in any of their quests 
and quests are a big part of how you win the game. So you're essentially hindering someone, and you have to choose someone. And this may be what you're getting at with the kingmaking, and that who do you choose, right? Because it's just all negative. There's no You do get a little bit of reward for doing the mandatory quests, but it's not value. It's one of the worst parts about the game. No one likes mandatory quests, unless you're particularly negative individual perhaps you really like making people suffer problem with it is that not only is it annoying and generally unnecessary but also it's bad for the person playing it the only time i'll play a mandatory quest is when i have no other cards in my hand it's just mandatory quests so i kind of have to do it i still want to if i do a spot that also plays an action card but in general if you play a mandatory quest that means you're not playing a card which gives you a benefit you're just hurting someone else. And that waste of tempo is bad for you. But in the situation where I have to play a mandatory quest, I have to you know, just figure out who I think is winning. Having it tied to such a dumb, poorly designed action means that the art of attacking the leader is not done very well in Lords of Waterdeep. That's my opinion. You guys both heard me mention mandatory quests, right? Oh, I did not. No, I, I know you mentioned mandatory quests. David didn't. I was like, I said it right in the explanation of the game. Oh, I missed that part. My mind just blanked out at Lord's Waterdeep. It felt like a mandatory quest having to talk about this game. Okay, okay, got it. It's weird. You basically said what you said, just like you didn't hear me say it. What I said, I was like, oh, did he not hear it? That's weird. Okay, okay, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. I think I definitely agreed with the first half of what David said, and that's like, it, this doesn't strike me as a particularly like notable example of kingmaking and like you know my mind also went to mandatory quests when you thought of it when you mentioned kingmaking in lords of Waterdeep, but i don't know i think they're fine so i think like from a flavor perspective the first time i saw mandatory quests, like oh this is cute this is fine future games like i don't know it was just part of the game yeah nothing strikes me as like particularly special about like kingmaking stuff in this game like like i guess it's a game that has it and it doesn't as kind of david was saying doesn't really address it or do anything special about it did you want a good practical example of a game that changed because of kingmaking? Okay, well, the one that springs to mind immediately is Small World. Small World is a game that has hidden scoring. It, you throw your different races of stuff onto the board, you fight it out, you try to conquer as much territory as possible, and then you regress and do it again over like eight turns or so, depending on the number of players. The point is, though, you get a certain number of points each turn. And those points, while they could be tracked if you wrote them all down or whatever, they're hidden information. They're just you just get little tokens, and they're all face down. So, and in general, people don't like write it down or keep in mind in general how people are doing. And so, what happens is towards the end of the game, it's just you're not totally sure how many points everyone has, although you do have a general idea based on how well you feel everyone's doing. The reason this is important, or the reason I bring this up, is because Small World is based on a game called Vinci. Vinci came out oh, several years before, and it's pretty much the exact same game with a different theme. But one of the changes they made from Vinci to Small World was that Vinci is open scoring. You keep track of your points on a score track around the board throughout the game. Whereas in Small World, you have the hidden scoring like I just mentioned. And so... The reason this is important is because if you've ever played Vinci, you'll know why this was done. What happens is in the last turn of Vinci, in turn order, everyone will just simply go after whoever's highest on the score track. You will all gang up on that person until 
that person's no longer in the lead, then you go up, getting up on the next person. And this gave, assume, assuming they're within striking distance, this gave the person in last place a ginormous advantage. Last in turn order, not last, not necessarily last place in score. Right. And turn order wasn't determined in game. It's, yeah, it's predetermined. Whoever took the first turn will take the first turn in the last round and so on. And so whoever went last has a certain advantage. And so in Vinci in particular, you essentially wanted to be second place going into the last round. There's a big fight for being exactly second place. The whole meta of the game went around that scoring track, which everyone could see. And if you weren't first, you just got ganged up on. That's just how it was. But with Small World, because the score is hidden, that takes a lot of that out. And people generally just try to improve to get the most points they can. Uh, if you have a choice of whose territory to take, you may, that may be a factor of who you perceive is winning or who you think is doing best. But it takes a lot of the ganging up and, I guess, collusion out of the game and makes it more of an open, chaotic field like it's supposed to be. I thought your description was actually being very generous <laughs> for Vinci. Because what I remember of it was the last couple of rounds, basically the last two or three rounds leading up to, because, sorry, 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 I should mention the end game trigger in Vinci is when one person hits 100 points. Yeah, you hit 100 points and then that triggers the last round. Oh, I forgot about that. And then everything David described happens. So what he describes is actually a lot worse in that... Everyone is doing a lot of like AP math, trying to figure out exactly when um, the game was going to end, as in who was who was going to hit a hundred points and then trigger the last round. So then, and some people wanted it to happen earlier, some people wanted it to happen later. So what would happen is uh, most people wanted it to happen later. So they just keep attacking people to try to prevent players from triggering the end which dragged the game on. And then the amount of like thinking that would go into that would also be very round. So the first rounds would be like very quick, relatively speaking, to the last like two or three rounds, which would be just tediously long, where people were sitting there trying to like figure out how to score more points. It was just so brutal. I've only played Vinci once, and I was like, oh, this is why this happens. And... Whose idea was it for the hundred point like uh, thing to be the end game? Because it's terrible, it's so bad. And when Small World came out, and it kind of basically took those two things out, emitted a set number of rounds, so you know exactly when the end was coming, and not triggered by anyone scoring a hundred points. I was like, wow, that's a massive improvement on, on the design as a whole. Because I remember, like, oh my god, Vinci was just. So, like, overstate its welcome by using that 100-point trigger thing. Yeah, that's so brutal. And yeah, it, it was kind of like king-making on steroids. <laughs> like, I, I honestly thought David's description was, like, very generous. Like, oh, wow, he's being pretty nice. He's leaving a lot, a lot of our, like, big problems in those last rounds out. <laughs> well, I wanted to make it a little succinct. Also, I haven't played in a while because... Pretty much no one I know plays Vinci. They all just play Small World or, you know, many expansions. It is a better looking game as well. And I remember that that change in particular was incredibly important. And there's no way Small World would be as popular as it is if it kept that old rule from Vinci. 
Yeah, I, I was just like, oh my God, is this how this game's supposed to play out? <laughs> and I just thought it was just the most insane thing. Like, this is terrible. Uh, that's what I thought. I Like, I didn't have a specific, oh, this is how it's supposed to go. But I just remember like, oh, this is terrible, man. Getting this out like this is like really hard and really just, you know, stop being fun. I was like, what the hell is, I, I thought it was very bad. <laughs> like, and I didn't win that game. So was, this is really, really bad. This is really long. It's, it's really boring. Okay, yeah, I remember Vinci. So ridiculous. All right. I think that's about it for us. Oh, no, it's not. Hot take. Okay. David, your hot take. So here's what I'll say about king making. Really short and succinct, and I'll just get your opinions on it. Kingmaking is fine anytime. Now, not from a design perspective, but if you're playing and you're in a kingmaking situation, like whatever happens, whatever you choose is fine. Right. That's it. That's the hot take. 100%. That's it. Yep. Kingmaking is fine anytime, no matter what the final decision is. Yeah, I mean, I can I can elaborate on what I mean a little bit more. I think where kingmaking tends to go awry is that people tend to sometimes blame the players and not just the game itself, like the system that forces them into the situation. But the point more so is that when you play a game, you're entering kind of a social contract. You're there to play just generally fairly, but you're also there to have fun. And more of the point is, you essentially, you're the person at the chair it's almost like a poker tournament or other things. You have the right to play however you want. And that's part of the contract. Now, you know, if you if you choose to king make someone for reasons that people would consider bad, like, you know, uh, sexism, racism, just something out of the game, you hate that person in real life, other things. That is not to me, that is not indicative of the king making or the game itself. That is a separate problem that should be dealt with appropriately, but it's not related to the board game itself. That's a person problem, not a board game problem. That's a person problem. Yes, exactly. It's a very person. I mean, that's an extreme example, but that's a person problem. If you want to go, you know, and that's hypothetical, you say, if you want to go after someone because they slided you earlier and that's all that matters, you have the right to do that. If you want to go after someone because they're in first, you can do that as well. And if you want to go after someone because you're not last or whatever reason, you know, within the game, you you should be allowed to play the game however you want and not be criticized for that. If there's other outside factors you're bringing into the game, that's an outside factor that should definitely be dealt with, but it's not a fault of the kingmaking. I mean, like, it's like the situation is bound to arise. And so no matter what you do, someone's going to be upset. And ultimately, you got to make a choice. And as David was saying, whatever happens, happens. You make your choice, and then it's, and that's it. King making as a person problem, not a game problem. Interesting. That's a very person problem. <laughs> Correct. And so, in that regard, like, whatever decision you make as king making is fine. It's just how, you know, obviously not cheating. If it's within the rules of the game, it's, it's what you decide. That's your decision, and that's the game. And, you know, hopefully it's fun, you know. Hopefully people don't get incredibly offended but right look whatever happened yeah where I, I don't know how to close this out i'm bad at this <laughs> so, whatever like whatever happens king making is totally fine any situation that's just that's just how it is you have you have a right to play how you want 
Well, all right. I mean, I think what you said, like, sort of produces the most healthy, uh, you know, human interpersonal relationship in the long run. Well, hopefully, yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's a fair way to look at things and like keep in mind as you move forward. So you don't think any criticism should be given to the person who he makes or as far as why? I mean, you can you can criticize, just not like, don't take it personally if you get king, if someone king makes you for game reasons, at least. What if you get mad? If someone makes a bad move and you're the, what's the word, not the benefactor, but the opposite of that. If you're the victim of a bad move through no fault of your own, I mean that's just that's just part of the game. People should be like you know, people can make mistakes, people can play badly, people can hurt you and just be unaware of what they were doing. Um, <clears throat> you should probably explain you should probably explain what Mac is, but yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, um that's a very specific term. It refers to uh, a friend of ours who actually I haven't seen him in a while, but uh, he would sometimes make a move that did not strictly help himself and ended up hurting another player, like, devastatingly so. And what made it the worst is because the move didn't benefit him, no one could predict it or see it coming. So it would just just destroy another player. It was just insane. And um, if you've heard our top five list, a lot of those games are very difficult and very unforgiving. So having someone throw a monkey wrench in your program where you can't see it coming <laughs> can be just devastating. And then there's no way to predict it, right? Because by definition, like the move doesn't help him. So why would he do it? And he just did it. And you're like, what the hell? Oh, it gets, it gets even worse if you try to predict it. Because if you try to predict it, he ain't doing it. There's no reasonable way to predict it was kind of the, the joke. Because you're just you just can't see it coming. Like this move doesn't help you. Why would you do this? Pick a move that helps you, <laughs> and then that's very reasonable. But you know, I, I did this, and then it's just a very specific conflict. Because and we were playing games that are extremely like just low margins for error. Uh, you know, any kind of monkey wrench, and it's oftentimes a cas- cascade effect that really would destroy someone's game. And you're like. Whoa, dude. <laughs> and just the same guy would do it a couple of times, and then he kind of got this rep. He's like, dude, what if he matched? Uh, you just can't see it coming. Like, But that's part of the definition. Like, you can't see it coming. Well, yeah, I've kind of got an example of a bad king making, but, you know, it's a player's choice. And that was with uh, you. You, me? Or you, Andrew? You, Paul. Oh, okay. There was a game of Carson City. I think it was... I can't remember. But anyway, it was me, Paul two other people and this guy and this guy it was this guy's first game oh, oh okay i remember this one what happened was in the first round if you don't know carson city is a five round game i won't get into the whole thing about it but all you need to know is carson city's five round and part of the game is that you can take the same spot as someone else and then you have a shootout that's part of the wild west appeal of the game anyway what happened was in the first round paul went on the same space as this guy or maybe he went, I, I can't remember. Anyway, they had a shootout. And because of that shootout in the first round, the guy proceeded to just target Paul relentlessly throughout the rest of the game. <laughs> to, as it was explained to him several times, to the detriment of his own game, and obviously the detriment of Paul's game, for the whole game. <laughs> it was quite ridiculous. Although, honestly, hilarious. Very frustrating for Paul. 
but and he just you know i tried we tried to like give him you know hey man this is not how you're really supposed to play the game like it was you me john uh the new guy and and that's it or is it just the four of us or five I think of it was us? a five-player game but maybe it was four Oh, okay, okay, okay. Could have been four. Either way, it doesn't matter. The point is... <laughs> That's not how you kingmate? <laughs> that is how you kingmate, but I will defend his right to do it, even though it was very dumb and <laughs> very annoying. <laughs> the hill David dies on, defending uh, what a dumb person did while telling him to his face it's still dumb. Yeah, basically. So, I remember this, this one. So, if you know Carson City, it's a worker placement game. Unlike most worker placement games, two people can take one action. But only one of those two people is going to get the action. It's actually strategically advantageous to not uh, telegraph you're going to get into a fight with someone. Basically, it's a you keep playing until you pass. And then if you pass, you get to pick your role earlier in the next round. So if you're going to get into a fight with someone, you generally want to use your last couple of guys' uh, actions to place your guys there and uh, not let them react, essentially. But what was going on on the board, it was pretty obvious from the way I was playing what buildings I was going to take. So the, the new player, obviously being new to the game, didn't understand what I was doing and didn't understand that it was obvious. So he just took the building he thought was good, which was fine. And that building was good. So he didn't do anything wrong. I then proceeded to, as my last move, take the building that was best and then uh you know we both had passed he couldn't react we sh- we we fought and obviously i won the fight and took the building from him from there it was pretty much what david described it was like okay for the rest of the game all you want to do was shoot me in the face as opposed to uh build up any infrastructure to like buy points which is what you do in that game i think like he he did fine for his first game doing what he was doing i wasn't gonna get in his face or like get too serious about it because it was his first game and then you know i also played the best game i could and uh the result of that was this guy was not gonna let it go (laughs) yeah it was pretty funny uh, as i recall i'm glad you have a good sense of humor about it (laughs) yeah i mean like it was his first game so it's hard to like say well clearly you know you know he played a million times and he chose this incredibly bad strategy and came in last through his own conscious choices even though he was being advised otherwise the only reason he stepped into the first trap is because he didn't know the game at all i'm not going to blame a guy for that (laughs) that's just his reaction afterwards i to some extent is his fault if he doesn't know how to let things go he doesn't know how to let things go that's not really on me yeah that was a pretty funny game uh amanda still like loves to tell that story and use it as a uh, example of how i antagonize people and have them shoot me in the face and i'm like hey hey you don't have to tell that story (laughs) 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 but she loves telling that story and john actually like pulled me aside later and like was very apologetic like sorry i did it was his first game i didn't realize he was going to do that i was like no it's okay dude like that's not on you. He, I get that it was his first game. It's not that big a deal. John's a nice guy, so I wasn't really going to like blame him for it. Oh, you should have been like, you owe me for this. I know. I should have flipped his table over. <laughs> you owe me forever. Starting <laughs> 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 with getting a new table because this table sucks. <laughs> One day I'll come calling. Debts, debts have to be paid. <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, Andrew, do you have any fun? Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> King making stories. Not, nothing like that stands out nearly as dramatically as anything y'all just said. Uh, clearly, you've never had someone try to shoot you in the face for a whole game. No, I, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> well, good on you. I, I don't recommend the experience, but it does, it does happen. Okay, I guess uh, we'll wrap it up there. And with that, let's go ahead and move on to the game show. Today, we're going to be doing question and guess. I'm going to think of a board game. Each contestant's going to get to ask one question, then make a guess as to what game it is. Uh, your questions can be any question you want, as long as it's not, what's the name of the board game? Or what's its BG ranking? Or anything like that. Oh, so to be clear, these don't have to be yes or no questions? They don't have to be yes or no questions. Okay. You can ask, who publishes it? What's the player count? How heavy is it? Et cetera, et cetera. Are we allowed to look at BGG? Sure, sure. Go ahead and look at BGG. Oh, good, because I'm on there right now. And did you know there's a Mysterium Kids? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. What? Is it like Mysterium with less frightening pictures for children? I guess so. I mean, like the, the background's still kind of mysterious, but then there's like kids is in four different colors, all kid-like. It's only 21 minutes. Yeah, sorry to derail it, but this was very important. All right. I can't guarantee I won't cut that out. Okay. We have our first game. All right. My first question. Is it Dungeon Lords? No, it's not Dungeon Lords. Okay. So I'm going to guess... I'm going to guess Galaxy Trucker. No, it's not Galaxy Trucker. Oh, I feel like I'm really narrowing it down here. Definitely eliminate two games from your from your guesses. Good gosh. This is going to take a long time. We could just turn it into this, this guessing game. Uh, for the audience who, who didn't know this, I told these two jokers ahead of time, don't do that. Because <laughs> the game will take forever if you do it that way. But whatever, let's move on. Uh, Andrew, your guess and uh, your question and guess. All right, I'll be slightly more helpful. Was this game published before 2020? Yes. My guess is Lords of Zidit. No, it's not Lords of Zidit. All right. Are you looking at, this isn't the question, but are you referencing BGG right now? Yes. Okay. Is it in the Board Game Geek Top 100 right now? Didn't we specifically put a Nix on ranking questions? Oh, did we? Shit, never mind. All right, never mind. Nix that. Well, the specific was like, hey, don't ask what the rank number is because you could just look it up then and that would ruin the game. Yeah, I'm not asking what it is specifically. I'm narrowing it down as such. But I'll, I'll change the question. That's fine if you don't like it. Does this game take more than two hours to play with the max number of players? No. Well, that was fast. Uh, so before 2020, super fast or under two hours with the max number of players. Ooh, okay. I'm going to guess... I'm going to guess Letter Jam. No, it's not Letter Jam. I thought you might pick it because it's on your top five list. Funnily enough, I was thinking that as well. <laughs> well, I know it's not Nemesis now. Nemesis would take more than two hours with, uh, with four players. All right, all right, Andrew, back to you. Is this a cooperative game? Yes, it's a cooperative game. Wow, did you hear all those possibilities disappear? <laughs> like, they just fell away. And your guess, Andrew? Uh, my guess is Hanabi. Hanabi's correct. That's just Letter Jam with 
with the fireworks. What's your point, David? I feel like this could get maybe half a point getting in the ballpark. I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure no one agrees, Mia. It's the original letter jam. I thought it's just one, and that is cooperative. I I also almost said just one as my guess, and I was like, wait, that's not cooperative. It's fully cooperative, yeah. It's not one of those, like, cooperative with a traitor, which is kind of borderline. Okay, you're right. The person giving, okay. We've moved on to our next game. Since Andrew got the point, David, you're going to start us off. Oh, is that how it works? We're not just going back and forth? I thought it was more like if there's someone was clearly getting more of them, the other person could get a little bit of an advantage and start things off. I'm not particularly sure this is an advantage, but okay. Is it another cooperative game? No, it is not a cooperative game. Clarification. Is Shadows Over Camelot a cooperative game? I believe it's considered a cooperative game, guys. I'm just uh, narrowing it down. So The trader mechanic came in later with an expansion, I believe. No, it's in the it's in the first. It's, it's in, in the, the base game. It's in the base game, yeah. All right, I think it's still considered a cooperative game. Yeah, I'm just making sure. So, so Dead of Winter is also a cooperative game, then. I think it gets both tags for cooperative and semi-co-op. Sure, you do have the option to play cooperative without the trader if you want in Shadows Over Camelot as well. I'm off the topic, so I will say I will guess the classic Settlers of Catan. No, it is not Settlers of Catan. Or just Catan now. Okay, Andrew, you're up. Okay, so I know it's not a cooperative game. Is it a team-based game? No, it is not a team-based game. Okay. Is it Terraforming Mars? <laughs> no, it's not Terraforming Mars. Had to be done. Had to be done. Do you win this game by scoring the most victory points? Uh, yes. Well, then clearly, it's Everdell. No, it's not Everdell. Well, if it's not Terraforming Mars and it's not Everdell, then what could it be? <laughs> I'm so bad at this. I guess we'll play wh- whoever scores, what, three points first? Sure, and the next and the next one's worth three points. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> okay, so that was back to Andrew? Yes. All right. What year was it published? It was published in 2019. All right, here I go. You're welcome. Would you like to make a guess? Oh, I have to make a guess now? Oh, God. Yeah, that's how this game works. And you do have to go by most victory points? Is it Parks? No, it's not Parks. What is the player count of this game? Uh, the game plays two to four players. Okay, it does not play one to four. That is a clue. You might as well go, it doesn't play one to five. <laughs> it doesn't do that either, yes. Yeah, it doesn't do that either. <laughs> All right, I'll go with the highest rated game that does that or doesn't play solo as far as I know. I don't really know. Anyway, so, well, I'll just say it out loud. Um, it's definitely, so it's not Wingspan and it's not Maracaibo. Therefore, the next one that I think Paul might pick is Barrage. Nope, it's not Barrage. I really like Barrage. It's a great game. Okay. I know you have it, and you brought it in. Yes. I saw it, and I found a piece of it later. Oh, nice. Wait, do you still have that piece? I think I mentioned I put it in the bins. Maybe, maybe I, gave, I don't remember. I feel, like I, I feel like you got it back. I'll check, my, uh, I'll check my barrage later and see if I have all the pieces. All right, Andrew, you're up. Going to double your score here, really pull into the lead. 
I'm just still looking through the list of games that this could be. There's so many games. Jesus Christ. If only there were a way to narrow way down. We, there is. You know it's not uh, Terraforming Mars and Everdell. Yeah. You're welcome. It's not Catan. It's not whatever you just said. Oh, Barrage. Right, Barrage. See, that's the other thing. That one's slightly more relevant. <laughs> what is the predominant mechanic in this board game? Network and route building? I did not expect to hear that. And your guess. I don't know any of these games. Okay. I'm going to say, because it might fit the description, Babylonia. Babylonia is correct. 2019, exactly two to four players. <laughs> Where the hell is Babylonia on here? Yeah, what's the, what's the BGG ranking right now? 871. Oh, there it is. Okay, I finally scrolled down to it. I thought, yeah, I thought one of you guys would just ask about the designer, and then once it's Canizia, that would have pretty much cut to the chase. Well, Canizia only narrows it down to 500 games. But in 2019 as well. Yeah, maybe not in 2019, that's true. The trick here is, if if you ask what the designer is, then you have one guess before your opponent will narrow it down quite considerably after knowing the designer. It, it's pretty risky. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, Andrew doubles his score, solidifies lead at two points to zero. Am I asking the question first? Is that what's happening? Oh, I guess I'm first since I since you got the point. Yeah, David's first. Would you say this game has good art? Sure. Oh, well, that eliminates Haunted Teutonica. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking it's a bluff. I think you're like, sure, like, you know, why not? But it actually definitely has good art and everybody knows it. And therefore, my guess is Mysterium. Nope, it is not Mysterium. But that does have good art. It's true. All right. Is this a game you would play more than five times? Yes, I would play this game more than five times. Oh, actually, wait, I don't know what games Paul likes. <laughs> We did a top five list together. I feel like you know some games I like. (laughs) All right. My guess is Nemesis. No, it is not Nemesis. Oh, that's what I was going to guess. Technically, I haven't actually played Nemesis more than five times. (laughs) But you want to. But I want to, sure, sure. Oh, but you would. We should play a game of Nemesis, a game of Barrage, and a game of whatever Andrew wants to play. We could do it. It was fun. No Nemesis again? David, you're up. You know what? I'll just go for it, because Paul seems to really want us to. Who is the main designer of this game? Designed by Seiji Kanai. Oh, wait. I get to guess. Uh, it's, it's Love Letter. It is Love Letter. Yay! David finally makes it on the board. <laughs> what, you weren't going to put, like, Unicornist Knights or something? Unicornist Knights? I thought about it. I got a point. More Japanese designers, please. Okay. Boy, that gamble paid off. It's almost like playing Love Letter. Okay, Andrew, you're first. All right, I'm going to stick with my winning strategy. What year was this game published? 2018. I have to make a guess now. Are you, are you ever going to pick two games from the same year? Sure. This could be it. This could be it. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to guess Villainous. Nope, it is not Villainous. Okay. 
Just base villainous or like Yeah, base villainous. It's twenty eighteen. Oh, okay. Right oh, Disney villainous, here it is, yeah. Oh, there's so many good games in twenty eighteen that I've played. What the heck? There's quite a lot. This is crazy. David? <laughs> yes. You're up. If applicable, what country is the theme of the game based on? Not applicable. Not applicable. Okay. Well, let's see. So, not Rising Sun, not Teotihuacan. Either that or he's too embarrassed that he didn't know where it is. I'm sure he could look it up. Yeah. Not Welcome to... Is Arkham Horror in USA? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, it's on here, so I have to guess it. Is it Nemesis? It is Nemesis. I thought of guessing that. No. Why did you not? I, I thought. Why did you not guess it? All right, the score is all tied up. Andrew, you're starting us off. I just started last time. Yeah, whoever scores, uh, the other guy starts off. Okay. All right. It's a strategy that's paid off more often than not. So, what year was this game published? 2008. Oh, we're going old school. There were only like, what's it, three games published in 2008. So that should narrow it down quite a bit. <laughs> only three? Wow. Okay. All right, Andrew, just, you got a one in three chance. You might as well just guess. All right, here we go. All right, first one on the list. Is it Dominion? It's not Dominion. All right, David, you're up to uh, question. Is this a cooperative game? It is a cooperative game. Is it Pandemic? It is Pandemic. Yay! <laughs> there are actually a fair number of cooperative games, surprisingly, because Pandemic came out in 2008. But so did Space Alert, Ghost Stories, and a few others. As I rolled, scroll down here, which is kind of surprising because Pandemic is considered to be the one that really popularized cooperative. Right. Well, it's probably the most successful of the ones you named, right? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, Pandemic is easily the most successful cooperative game. Like, it's considered to popularize it. I would have expected more games to come out, like, a year later or, you know, not, like, right away. Take some time to develop, right? Exactly, or time to feel notice, like, hey, cooperative can sell a lot. This is quite the comeback for David. Andrew, can you tie it up here? Go ahead, you're starting. Hmm, not so sure. I'm not so confident in this strategy anymore. Uh, It's okay to change uh, tactics. I I think I will. Is this a cooperative game? It is. Good lord, do you only pick cooperative games? Or like two out of three of them? (laughs) Let's not bring the lord into this. And shut up! Okay, let's move on. Is it Magic Maze? No, it's not Magic Maze. Oh, I love Magic Maze. Yeah, I know. So good. Is it Pandemic again? No, it's not Pandemic. Okay, I'm going to guess that it's Mysterium. No, it's not Mysterium. Well, narrowed it down. Yeah, questions are hard. Hey, Andrew, you're up. Are cards involved? No. Ooh, co-op game, no cards. Holy shit. And it's not Magic Maze. Ooh. Call game with no cards? Yeah. Let me double check. Let's see. I'm pretty sure it's no. I feel like it's a no, but what do I know? <gasps> is it Minara? No, it is not Minara. I guess arguably there are some cards involved in that one, actually. 
trying to think of a game without cards that's cooperative. That's nuts. There's so few. Like all the crew uses cards. The mind. Yeah, I was thinking the mind until he said no. Let's all use cards. Mysterium. Well, I said Dixit. He did say no, and then he stuck to it. Like Hanabi uses cards. Letter Jam, of course, uses cards. How could you possibly play like throw throw burrito or something, which isn't cooperative, but maybe you need a question to narrow it down. Good idea. What is the predominant mechanic of this game besides cooperative? Uh, besides cooperative, okay. Communication limits. Yeah, I don't think cooperative is a mechanic, but I was just afraid you were going to say that. Communication limits. Hmm. Oh, I wonder if he's thinking. No. So just to be clear, team-based is not cooperative, yeah? That's correct. Okay, good. Uh, how does he have a game without cards? Right, you know what? I'll, I will guess Gloomhaven, the number one game. Nope. Okay, Andrew, you're up. You're not going to ask what year it was published? <laughs> now is the time. What year was it published? Okay, it was published in 2021. Holy shit. I thought I had a brilliant answer, and now it's because of that. It, that can't be it. So looking quickly through the list, my guess is So Clover. That's correct. Andrew ties it up three apiece. Hey, I had a question for you. What do you call the things you put in the clover? What, tiles? Tiles, got it. I mean, they're not what you would naturally think of as cards, right? Sure. They go specifically in the setting. It's not like you hold them all the time to play them. This is true. You do not classically think of it as cards. I look through the mechanics thing. It doesn't say, like, has cards. Is there a listing for has cards? <laughs> well, it only says communication limits cooperative game. It doesn't have, like, hand management or... That's not what I would think of as cards. Perhaps the key here is that Board Game Geek is flawed and that we shouldn't keep using it <laughs> as a thing, even if it is convenient. Perhaps that is the case, yeah. Although I do like this family that it's in under mechanism called Give a Clue, Get a Clue. It's true. <laughs> yeah, Board Game Geek needs to get a clue. Okay, so Andrew scored that one. David, you're going to start us off? Yes. So I'm up. All right. Should I start? Go ahead. Go ahead. Obviously, I'm going to ask, is it cooperative? No, it's not cooperative. Well, that takes out just one. All right. I'm going to name my newest obsession uh, that I've been playing a lot recently, and that is Obsession. Nope. Not as Obsession. Oh, it's a good game, though. Andrew, you're up. All right. So it's not cooperative. Is this a one-person-against-everyone-else type of game? No, it is not. Okay. All right, well, since we're speaking of obsessions, is it Terraforming Mars? No, it is not Terraforming Mars. It's kind of an obsession in the other, in the other way, isn't it? It's still an obsession. <laughs> oh, that, that's fair. Yeah, you can hate on something a lot. <laughs> to an obsessive degree. Yeah, yeah. Oh, a new new expansion for Terraforming Mars? Yes. We're not I don't want to play it, no. I just can't wait to laugh at all the people who buy it. Exactly. Not cooperative, not all versus one. Well then the next logical question is, is it team versus team? Uh no, it is not team versus team. Oh, we've gone through the whole spectrum of potential cooperative mm. games and this doesn't add up at all. Is it Agricola? It's not Agricola. Hmm. The plot thickens. 
Andrew, you're up. Right, well, let's keep skirting the question. Uh, is it a legacy game? Is it a legacy game? No, it is not a legacy game. Okay. And your guess? My guess is Lords of Waterdeep. Nope, it's not Lords of Waterdeep. Is this game, or sorry, in your opinion, is this game light or lighter than light? Is it light or lighter than light? Those are the only two choices? No, just yes or no, really. Is this game light? Yes. Okay. No, it is not light. There's some weird pedantic people will be like, just one's not a light game, it's a party game. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, you, you know what I mean. That's why I added the, the lighter than light. Okay. Is that a difference without a distinction there? What, what is that? I guess so. Light... What is their point? I don't understand what they're trying to like get you to understand. I don't know. They, they have a really just, just distinct categorization that they like to use. It feels odd to stick to it. I mean, I feel like a party game is a better descriptor, but if you're asking about the weight, then you're asking about the weight, right? And they're not mutually exclusive. You, It can be a party game that's light. To those people, it is mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's weird. All right. Um, no, it is not a light game. It is a bit weird, yes. So then it's clearly Caverna. It is not Caverna. What am I going to guess next? Uh, well, you'll have to wait for Andrew first. Okay. Is drafting a mechanic in this game? No. Yeah, that's actually surprising. Holy crap. <laughs> I know. Not a drafting game. Oh, no. Can't be Terraforming Mars. Which we already ruled out. Yeah, I know. But I feel like you wanted to guess it again. Just to relay my, the conviction of my hate for Terraforming Mars, I wanted to guess it a second time. Again, not even hate. All right, it's just overrated. Right. Is it Dune Imperium? It's not Dune Imperium. You know you draft in that game? Is that a draft? Like a card draft, you know? like Or it's, a, it's picking off a line. I consider that a draft. I mean, some people consider just the, the cards thing where you, where you can't necessarily see what everyone can draft. So you have to not see? Yeah, it's not the it's not the traditional drafting for sure. It's not like Seven Wonders drafting. That's Seven Wonders style is what I had in mind. But whatever. Let's just move on. You know what? Yeah, let's let's try it again. Um, what is the player count for this game? Three players. Holy shit. I'm sorry, what? Three players? Only three players. I did not expect to hear that answer. I know. What game is only three players? I know one, but it's highly unlikely he would pick this as I'm not sure Andrew knows what it is. With Board Game Geek, anything is possible. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, actually, you know what? I should not discount that and see if there's a more obvious answer for exactly three. So number of players range three to three and exact. That's pretty That's pretty good. I'll give you a nice little uh, range here. Okay, so starting by rank, starts with Star Trek Ascendancy, then Three Kingdoms Redux, which is the one I was thinking of. And then a bunch of stuff I've never heard of, except for Trieste. Wait, you even found stuff when you put in three to three? I didn't find any. Uh, and you hit you hit exact, so it doesn't. I did hit exact. I found I mean, there's it said nothing. Nothing. When I did three to blank. No, 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 not so three to three. You hit exact, and you got nothing. Did were, did you fill out some of the other parameters and leave them on by any chance? You're right. I did have things that were. Uh... Anyway, so the top game here is uh. Which the one I'm going to go with is Star Trek Ascendancy. That's correct. Yay! Is that four points? All right, David, you're at four points. Pressure's on. 
Andrew, you want to start us off? I think I will. Is this game science fiction themed? I'm going to say yes. This is a futuristic game. So science, yeah. It's Nemesis. All right, I'm still going to go with my guess. Is it Space Station Phoenix? No, it is not. I'm running low on ideas. Is this game either cooperative, one versus all, or team versus team? Why don't you just ask the reverse, like, is it competitive then? Is it one of the following you listed, which is one versus all, cooperative, and team versus team? No. Oh, wow. See, if I just asked if it's competitive, then it's just basically anything but cooperative. It could still be team versus team or one versus all. So it's not not alone, which is the theme I was going for, essentially. Well, that's, that seems pretty obviously sci-fi, too. but It, it is sci-fi. Oh, sorry, I forgot. It is sci-fi? Right. Sorry, I got so distracted, I forgot if it was, if it was or not. Okay, it is sci-fi. I'll just go with Netrunner. It is not Netrunner. Okay, Andrew. Is this a game you would play five or more times? Yes, I would play this five or more times. And potentially vaguely sci-fi themed. Vaguely sci-fi? That's actually the tricky part right now for me and my little brain. Is it Space Space? Space Space. Space Space. It is not Space Space. Oh, not Space Space. Have you played this game five or more times? I have not played this game five or more times. Well, you should get on that, Buster. Okay, David. Yep, that's me. Game, but you play more than five times, but you haven't. That means it's hard to get to the table. Probably heavier. How will go with Anachrony? No, it is not Anachrony. Actually, I should check that. Have I played that five times? Do you have the data on that? I usually record plays for it. Oh, on Board Game Geek? Yeah. Well, let's just look up you real quick. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't help. You're not looking up every game you haven't played five or more times. <laughs> I've played it eight times. Oh, okay. Well, that was clear. That was clearly a bad guess on my part. All right, let's just move on. Uh, Andrew, you're asking a question? I was about to guess Nemesis, and then I realized it was cooperative. But first, I have to ask a question. All right. This is it. What year was it released? Okay, it was released in 2021. God damn. Fancy-ass new games, I don't know. It's true. It's a fancy-ass new game that you don't necessarily know. Vaguely sci-fi. Oh, this is, this is our repeat here. Oh, oh wait, no, it's, it has to be competitive. Wow, I keep looking at cooperative for some reason. You do love cooperative games, as I recall. Is it Dune, a game of conquest and diplomacy? No. There's so many Dune games now. There are a lot of Dune games. There are a lot. David, your question. I'm trying to look for a, a not really sci-fi game. I'm in this, though. All right. Is th- oh, I can narrow it down, sort of. Is this a drafting game? Yes. Is it It's a Wonderful World? No. Oh, crap. That didn't, the, uh, this is It's a Wonderful Kingdom I'm looking at. Oops. Well, it's a drafting game. <laughs> you just said not drafting. Okay. No, it is drafting. It has drafting in it. Wait, no, it is drafting. Yeah. Come on, Andrew. Narrow it down. Narrow it down. <laughs> what is the player count for this game? It plays one to four players. One to four? In 2021, going through the list, churning through the list. So many games. But sci-fi. 
Look, I keep looking at these. What sci-fi? For the, for the sake of making guess, is it Bullet Heart? No. All right, it's time. Who is the designer of this game? Thias Wiege. I am not 100% sure I'm saying that right. One more time, please. It's, M- it's M-A-T-H-I-A-S, um, last name W-I-G-G-E, because I'm looking at it right now. Uh, is it Arc Nova? It's Arc Nova. All right. That makes five. We'll call it a game. Yay! I fail to see how that is sci-fi. Would you, would you not call that sci-fi? How is it sci-fi? You're building a futuristic zoo. It does say modern scientifically managed zoo. Okay, I didn't realize it's futuristic, but I just thought zoo. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little uh, iffy on the sci-fi. Scientific, but like, what zoo wouldn't have those, you know? Like, nothing feels sci-fi about it. The name. Well, okay, look, it does say theme science, and it is fictional, so... <laughs> uh, I was going with the theme that it was very loosely sci-fi, so that's why I was, it was on the radar, yeah. I still need to play Ark Nova at some point, so... Oh, you haven't played it? Let's play it. No, I haven't. All right, uh, congratulations, David. Thank you. I was feeling not very confident right away, but I did manage to come back, and I'm very proud. If you're listening on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can do that at our Board Game Geek Guild Impromptu Board Gaming Podcast. Guild number 4233. Or if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please email us at impromptu podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, impromptu podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time.